It is the first full day of spring, dear listener, and that means it's time for you to spring over to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store and check out all that is on offer, including the Spring Spectacular Collection, exclusively at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. So much merchandise, lots of t-shirts, there's hoodies, there's so many other things. Oh my gosh. You'll find them all available to buy right now. So hurry on over to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. The seasons are changing and your wardrobe will change and change for the better. (laughs) As you shed those layers and get into clothing that is more comfortable for you. And I think you'll have a comfortable look and fit and feel in these tremendous items. Colorful, eye-popping, attention-getting, with a real message, uplifting messages, and things for you to think about. Check it all out right now at the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Sunday, March the 21st, 2021. I don't believe that the rights of women come from the government, from any government. I believe that women gain their rights by their own efforts. I didn't believe that Nasser will bring liberation to us, or social, or Sadat, or Mubarak, or any ruler. We women should organize ourselves and be aware of our problems and fight. I don't believe in individual rule, that an individual ruler will bring uh, rights to women or to men or to anybody. So the people themselves should fight for their rights. And fortunately that women in America and in the world discovered that. Because when I was talking in international women conferences, and I'm saying that the problem of women is global, global and local, we cannot separate between the local and global. They, they laughed. But now the American women now are fighting against rape and uh, sexual molesting. And you heard about the very famous men who raped, uh, who raped women, you see. So I'm happy that it became known universally. It is universal and we should not speak about cultural relativism. I am not very much with this idea of cultural relativism or multiculturalism. This postmodern language, I I don't agree. I am very critical of this language, the so-called. So I think what I think is that the local is not separate from the global. That was the voice of Nawal El Sadawi. The legendary writer and activist from Egypt passed away today, today, at the age of 89. On this edition of The Politocrat, more from Nawal El Sadawi. Someone I had not even heard of until literally 
five minutes before I recorded this episode of The Politocrat. Welcome back. Noal El Sadawi. Someone who had the courage of her convictions and her activism and her belief that this world not only must be a better place for women, but won't be until we get to that point. I mean, I I got to say to you, the reason why I'm having trouble even speaking, which for me, of course, is thoroughly the normal thing, is that I've only just learned making it about me. (laughs) I have only just learned of the passing, uh, the very sad passing of Nawal El-Sadawi. And the truth is, I had not known who she was until literally just a few minutes before I began recording this episode. Yeah, this is something that, not the, you know, it's not that I know everybody on the planet. I don't. <laughs> but I was completely ignorant of who Nawal El Sadawi was. I don't know if you are familiar with her or were familiar with her or knew of her or knew her. But already, and she passed away today, sadly passed away today at the age of 89. Already I feel as if I knew her somehow. And already I feel like I wish I had known her and known of her at least during the time she was alive. Noal El Sadali had a career as an activist, really. She was a writer, she was an activist, acted on behalf of, well, she didn't act, she agitated for women's rights, women's, women's justice. She spoke out and spoke up, she was never silent. And the culture from the beginning tells girls and women to be silent, to be pretty, to sit there and smile whenever a man says something to them, to laugh at his fake jokes or to laugh at his so-called jokes that aren't funny at all. That's what girls and women are told to do. It gets reflected on TV and in movies and in company and in your face. Noel El Sadai was not someone who did that kind of thing. She didn't laugh at every man's joke. I'm pretty certain of that. Heck, I don't laugh at every man's joke either, for that matter. Because they just ain't funny, most of them. Unless they're Dave Chappelle, you know, or Chris Rock. (laughs) Or some of the folks from the past, like Richard Pryor and, you know... George Collin and Lenny Pruz. I know I'm leaving a few people out. But Nawal El Sadawi, who was a doctor, a feminist, and a writer, 
and a lecturer and an activist. Lived a very colorful, determined life. As she fought against oppression throughout her years. She never said die. And though she is no longer with us on this planet, she leaves behind a marvelous legacy that we should all want to even try to aspire to live up to. She spoke out against the violent male regimes of her own country. She spoke out against the female genital mutilation. She spoke out against rape and violence against women in general, because rape is a form of violence, of course. She spoke out and stood up against all of these things and more. Attended conferences around the world, spoke out in no uncertain terms against the oppression of women and championed the liberation of women and girls. That clip that you heard to start off this episode was of Noel El Sadali on the BBC show Hard Talk. That was aired in 2018. Now I'll be playing another clip or two from that during this episode. One of the things that struck me about what you just heard a few minutes ago was Noel El Sadahi said something that I have said on this podcast over the last day or two. And if I haven't said it here, I've certainly said it on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L. And that is that we've got to have a global perspective. And that is something I've said, I think, both here in the past, but certainly on Twitter. I literally said it a day or two ago when I tweeted out um, that we should stop, you know, tweeting out in general and stop calling us minorities. Can't stand that term. And I know someone's now going to use it to just see if they can try to get under my skin. You know how people do. You know how people are. There's a select. There's always that one or two people who do things like that. You, you've, you've come across them in your life. <laughs> you say something about yourself and you say, well, I don't like this. And then that person who hears it, they go, oh, well, I'll just say it to get under their skin. You know, you know that kind of person. Well, it doesn't get under my skin that that word is used. It's just pathetic that that word is used because it's dishonest. Minorities. When black and brown people and native peoples and Asian peoples make up the vast majority of people on the planet, the vast majority. And so what gets done in English and American society? Oh, we're going to just lump them in together because if we start to delineate every group, we would see that they aren't a minority at all. And so we have to just lump them in to make the world smaller because we're really the minority, you see. But we've got to make it seem like the world is small enough so that they are the minority. That's the kind of thinking that goes on here. I'm convinced of it. But one thing that Nawal El-Sadai said is that the struggle 
against the oppression of women is not just a local phenomenon. This is a global thing and you've got to connect the global to the local. And as you may remember hearing earlier on when the clip was aired here on this podcast a few moments ago, she said, you know, when she first said that to women, they would laugh at her. And when I believe she said that when she first said that to American women in particular, they would laugh at her way back when. Now they're not laughing anymore. Now they are actually taking up the struggle and they have been for, for decades now. But I'm sure that El Sadali was talking about the times back perhaps in the 60s and 70s when she would be, 1960s and 70s when she would speak at, the, at these uh, activist meetings or at these conferences or wherever she would speak. And in the earlier days, she'd be met with this kind of laughter. That this notion that you connect local to global and vice versa. And it's really important that you do. And I think one of the things that really set me to thinking about this is that we are very parochial here, very provincial. And not just here in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom and in, in France and a few other countries, particularly in Europe. We just keep ourselves to ourselves. And we don't, well, not all of us, because in Europe it's easier, actually, to be able to engage with the world because you can travel and be in different countries within a few minutes or an hour or a couple of hours or be in Asia in a you know, in relatively short time. But one of the things that I just sit here and think about is that most of the time we don't engage globally. We don't even engage with news globally. We don't. Most of us don't even know about what's going on in Tigray, in Ethiopia. You know, no one, no one's, most of us aren't aware of it. And we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on in the African continent. And Noal El Sadai is from the African continent. She was from Egypt. Yes, Egypt is in Africa. For those of you, <laughs> I don't think it is you, dear listener, but for some people in the world, not you, but some people in the world who still think that somehow Egypt is not part of the African continent, <laughs> you would be surprised by the number of people so-called educated people who still think this kind of nonsense, that somehow Egypt is not part of Africa. <laughs> he would be surprised. Noel El Sadai, though, is someone who was born in Cairo. And she uh, was a prolific writer. She wrote her very first novel. I mean, as a teenager, she was barely 13. And she was a fighter from the very start. I mean, even three years before her 13th birthday, her family was trying to make her marry at the age of 10 years old. And she said, hell no, I'm not doing that. That's a 10-year-old. Into a family culture and tradition, so-called in quotes, that, and a faith, or I shouldn't say faith, but a, 
a practice that said that a young girl, a girl who's 10, has to marry. A girl who's 8 is going to marry this guy who's 20 years older than her. 30 years older than her. It's just, oh gosh, it just makes me shiver. But this still happens in the, in, in the world, in some countries. And El Sadawi said, no. And luckily she had a, a mother who said, yeah, I'm with you. How many mothers say, you're going to go ahead and marry this person? Luckily, El Sadawi had a mother who backed her child in such a patriarchal culture and family tradition. But it was from there that she got her activist spirit and her roots in fighting against the sexism and the misogyny and the oppression of women. And El Sadawi was a courageous spirit too and challenged the male power structures and hierarchies and, and challenged the power of men and fought against the oppression of girls and women. I mean, she was at the age of six at the age of six, and I warn you that I'm about to say something that may be graphic. At the age of six, Noel, Noel El Sadai was subjected to female genital mutilation. And she had written a book, one of her many books is called The Hidden Face of Eve. And she goes into detail in that book. About being on a bathroom floor as this happened. And her mother just watched, watched what happened. This is um, Noel El Sadawi campaigned against, as I said earlier, female genital mutilation and fought to have it abolished and discontinued in was one of the leading voices against it in the uh, in the country of Egypt. And in fact, in 2008, uh, FGM for short, female genital mutilation, was banned in the country of Egypt. It continues, though, in various parts of the African continent. And we all must fight to end that practice it's not a practice it's barbaric it's brutal and it is torturous 
So we must, at every opportunity, if we have the money to do so, please donate. If you have the money to do so, donate to organizations that fight against this practice, this barbarism, this oppression of girls. El Sadawi had a, a keen sense that the world was not just toward girls and women, that the female gender was being oppressed by the male gender at every opportunity, at every moment of every day. And she discovered early on that that was the case and that she was going to have to fight against this. Her fight was something that really raised a lot of attention in Egypt and she had been faced with a lot of resistance. A political prisoner. And, you know, um, they're called dissidents, but let's be honest, they are political prisoners. I mean, these pretty sounding words, and you remember perhaps in the clip that you heard me play is that she spoke about language and hello... You know, somebody on this podcast has been talking about language for a number of weeks now. You know, they say that ideas rule the world, but language also rules the world as well. I mean, it really does in a very real sense. And you can't imagine. And this is going to this is selfish here for a second. Let me allow me to be. More so than usual. Allow me to be selfish for a second. You cannot imagine what that felt like to hear someone with the stature and fearlessness that Nawal El Sadawi had to say that she had a lot of problems with this postmodern language that is being spoken, that we're speaking. And a woman, sister, I'm telling you, you can't imagine how I felt. And maybe you can, but because I have been talking about this for such a, well, for quite some time. We are speaking a language that is really problematic. It really is. And it was so good. And again, I'm telling you, dear listener, that it hadn't been more than five minutes before I began recording this episode that I had even heard of Nawal al-Sadai. And shame on me, quite frankly. And I'm glad that now that I have, because I'm going to start reading her books what she has left the world and this language that she talks about even the word postmodern but this language we speak in and we just say these things automatically but don't even think again I said this the other day it's like the Malcolm Gladwell thing the whole Malcolm Gladwell blink theory or reality or book that he wrote called Blink. Literally, 
You're doing things and you don't even know why. It, it, it's staggering to me. So, speaking of language, as I said, she was a political prisoner. Nawal al Sadari was a political prisoner, dissident. I mean, she was a political prisoner. And the Sadat regime put her in prison for at least three months. This is in the early 1980s, around 1981 or so. I mean, she challenge the patriarchy you want to talk about women challenging the patriarchy and of course men have to do the same thing how many of us are willing to do that how many of us are willing to challenge the patriarchy and really speak truth to it and do the kinds of things that Noel El-Sadai did there are people in the world, in fact, I think of Mona el who is an Egyptian-born activist and writer and anti-patriarchy campaigner, who is on Twitter, by the way. I'm going to link you to her Twitter page in the liner notes of this episode. I believe her Twitter handle is Amazon Marathon O, N as in North, A as in Apple, E L. T-H-A-W-Y. But I'm going to put her Twitter handle on the line notes of this podcast episode. She's, I think, a special person in the sense of her commitment. Her commitment to fighting against the patriarchy. And that's not a buzzword when we say the patriarchy. That's a very real thing. And I think it's interesting, you know, I just talked about blink and how we just say things without thinking. But then we respond to certain words with outrage and fear. Like patriarchy. When I say that word or when you hear someone say that word, how do you react? How do you feel? Do you feel, oh, or do you think, oh, here's one of those radicals spouting off again? Or do you go, "Mm, yeah, you know, patriarchy, that really is happening. There are certain words that we will say just completely without thinking, not even realizing how corrosive those words are in the language. And then there are words that we hear, like the word patriarchy, and then some of us recoil at it, not because it's not there, it's because, oh my gosh, the patriarchy, there's a fear And I don't know whether it's a fear of the fact that the patriarchy exists or the fear is, oh my goodness, don't talk about that. Oh my goodness, he or she or they are talking about patriarchy and that's that's just so radical and I can't handle that. My brain can't handle that and I'm afraid and I'm fearful. Is that latter reaction the reaction that you have? When you hear that word spoken, when you see or hear someone say or speak about the patriarchy, are you more fearful of the person speaking the word or are you more fearful of the patriarchy itself? 
That's another thing about language and how we think about language. And so people like Mona el Tali, who is Egyptian, who I'm sure knows about Noel el Sadai and el Sadai herself, fight back against the way language is constructed and the way language is constructed in the patriarchy because the patriarchy is the institution, the system, the culture that is authoring the language, that is writing the language, that is introducing the language into the cultural bloodstream. And that's how it goes. And then we start repeating it. Sometimes like trained monkeys, sometimes completely blindly, sometimes without question, without questioning it. One of the things that Elsa Dai, and again, I've learned of her really, really recently, is that from some of the things I've just happened across literally before recording this episode, is that she always challenged language and challenged the strictures and constraints of a society that imprisoned girls, taught them that they were not of value, taught them and said to them, and laws and society and culture and behaviors told girls from the start that they were supposedly worthless. In China, the practice of ending the lives of girls because boys are the ones seen as valued in the culture and no, you couldn't have a girl child. That would be an abomination. That's what was being said in China. The one child rule and all this other kind of thing. And the one child rule deals more, I guess, with population. But this practice that wasn't just confined to the African continent or parts of the African continent. This is con- this was something that went on in Asian countries too. And Elsa Dai challenged this, challenged it fervently. Noel Elsa Dai is a, is a hero of mine, an instant hero of mine, alongside Angela Davis, alongside some of the other people that I have in the past referenced on Twitter as heroes of mine. You can call them sheroes. I call them heroes. You know, I, I don't want to really put a gender, genderizing to this, although hero is, it's, it's gendered, right? Um, she spent three months in prison. She dared to speak out against Anwar Sadat. And she dared to in the 1980s. And all of the threats to her life all of the violent threats, the death threats. She fought back against the hypocrisy of the Western world. Fought back and attacked colonialism and attacked religion. She criticized 
aspects of the Muslim faith. Didn't like the idea of the veil and the coverings. Didn't like the idea of makeup. Didn't like the idea that a woman was wearing makeup or revealing clothing. Felt that that kind of thing was something that was a male construct. And that, by the way, as Natalie Collins said the other day um, on this podcast, that you are dressing for somebody else, not you. Dressing for a man, perhaps, not for yourself. Now, of course, many of the female gender would take grave exception and tremendous issue with that notion. Because I would suspect, and this is, of course, me as a straight male talking, straight man talking, that a number of women would likely say, no, I'm not dressing for a man. I'm dressing for myself. And you as a man might think I'm dressing for you, but I'm dressing for me. Because this is how I feel. And this is how I express myself. And I dare say Elsa Dai might have taken issue with you. And there were a load of people who called themselves feminists who really were not happy with her when she started to rail and attack clothing that was being worn, that was revealing that women were wearing and makeup that was worn. They were not having that, some of them. It touched a little bit too close to home for some people. A little bit too close to home. She was fearless to the very end of her life. And just that kind of passion. You cannot defeat passion like that. You can't defeat passion. She wanted to continue and she did continue. Even to her very last day. Attacking oppression and patriarchy and the Western world for its hypocrisy on many things. I I, I really encourage you, and I'm gonna again, as I said, I'm gonna play um, a little portion of. I did say a couple of clips, but I'm gonna make it a little portion of uh, an interview. The same interview you just heard, actually, at the beginning of this episode. You, you have to hear more from her. She is someone that I'm inspired by now. I have not known about her, and I should have. And that's, that's me beating myself up, if you will, about that. Because, again, it's about a global perspective. Global. It can't always be about the United States. It can't always be about the United Kingdom or whichever country you are listening to this in. It's got to be about the world we live in. We are citizens of the world. That's the thing that I think we have to reclaim. We have to. And, and quite frankly, when we speak out here in the United States against a president dropping bombs on a country, 
whichever country it is this week. We are speaking out, not only as people inside a country who are against this kind of thing and this violence, we are speaking out as citizens of the world as well. That's what we're also doing. And it's important not to lose sight of that. So that when Nadal El Sawat Sadawi says that we have to have this global perspective and that the fight against the oppression of girls and women is something that is local and global and you've got to link those things. Same thing is true of everything in our lives. Everything. Everything. This is someone who spoke truth to power. We have lost a giant of giants. And many of you may not know who Nawal El Sadai was. Like myself, we may all, many of us, be ignorant to her. Maybe you do know who she was. Maybe you've read her books. I must say that I haven't. And if you are in the same boat as I am with regards to Nawal El Sadai, oh my goodness, we've got some reading to do, you and I. Welcome back. A quick apology for um, at times there incorrectly saying El Sadai's first name. It is Nawal, N-A-W-A-L. So my apologies for getting that wrong uh, at various points, I think, in that first block of this episode. In this second block, I just wanted to before getting to some of the audio that you're going to be hearing from that 2018 interview, more from that interview that you heard earlier, and that was done with the BBC for a program called Hard Talk. I'm sure you are familiar with it. It's, it plays here in the United States. It's also available on BBC Sounds at bbc.co.uk forward slash S-O-U-N-D-S. Nawal El-Sadai also ran for the presidency of Egypt um, back in uh, around 2004 and was someone who was very much part of the demonstrations in Tahrir Square in 2011, um, the uprising against the really corrupt Hosni Mubarak, who I think has since passed away. Um, Hosni Mubarak was was Mubarak was a really oppressive figure to say the least, and the people of Egypt had had enough. They they had had enough of him, uh, for his reign of of, of horror and terror, um, the Arab Spring as it was called in two thousand and eleven, and how social media played a role in all of that. She was at the heart of that. She was one of the major figures of that. Was Nawal El Sadai. Oh, what a sad loss this was. 
What a sad loss this is. Nawal al-Sadai. I mean, Nawal al-Sadai. This is such a loss. It really brings, in a way, tears to my eyes, dear listener. We get people like this who come on this earth. And the truth is there's probably millions of Nawal al-Sadai's in the making or out here. It's not about being the next Noal Al-Sadai. It's about being the first you. And taking the kinds of things she stood for. And spoke up about and spoke up against. And spoke up for. It's about taking those things. Those ideas, those passions, those beliefs. And making them your own and contouring this future that we have, that you have, and pushing it to a more elevated place for us all. Ultimately, that's really the challenge that we have. Ultimately, we've got to try to make this world a better place. And When people depart like this, there's supposed to be, hopefully, some meaning that is ascribed from their departure. And maybe there isn't meaning. Maybe there is a way that we struggle because there really isn't something that is left for us to make sense of other than their lives have ended on the planet as we know them. And so in that way, maybe there is no meaning to be derived on an objective level. But I actually think there is meaning to be derived from people, not just in the way they live, but also from their passing from this earth. And their passing from this earth leaves us with picking up that mantle, but we should always have that mantle All of us, it should never be just those who get the attention or those who are out there on the front lines all the time. We all have to play a role here. And I think as I reflect, literally, having learned of Nawal al-Sadahi, just literally, again, a few minutes before, five minutes before I started recording this episode, Because I was going to talk about something completely different today. But one of the lessons that I think I'm learning about Nawal al-Sadai is that I've got to keep fighting. Got to keep fighting. You have to. You have to. Whatever form that takes, of course, it's not violence. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about fighting as in speaking up, speaking out, educating people, educating boys, educating men, suggesting books for people to read. This is what I'm doing, for example. 
you have to ask yourself what kinds of things you are doing, if at all. What kinds of things are you doing? And it doesn't have to be the same thing I do. I don't have to do the same thing you do. It's about what you can do. And it doesn't have to be this grandiloquent, grand gesture. It could be literally just five minutes of your time signing a petition, sending some money somewhere, communicating with a loved one, a family member, your spouse, your friends about some issue that really means the world to you. Or learning about that issue that you may not be aware of, that maybe your partner or your spouse is talking about and you've had a conversation over the breakfast table, dinner table, lounging outside and you're reading a newspaper or a magazine and, or a book and all of a sudden your spouse or your partner says to you, hey, you know, this is something that I've came, come across. Let's talk about this. I want you to look at this. Here's something I recommend. I mean, whatever it is that you can do, if you can, if you can, please, please do it. So I'm going to leave you here now with the next, I want to, I'll play for you the roughly half of this interview that was aired in May of 2018. And I actually will link to the entire thing in the, the entire thing, listen to me, the entire interview, I will link to it in the liner notes of this podcast episode. And it's all audio. It's part of, part of it, which I played to start this podcast episode. I'm going to play though, roughly 11 minutes of this. It's just the, the, um, 11 minutes of this uh, interview um, that was done on BBC Hard Talk and I've um, forgotten the the host who interviewed the writer and activist from Egypt, Nawal El-Sadai. Um, but this is, I think, a really good interview and I'm hearing some of this for the very first time. Um, I've, I've heard a, a few portions of it before um, recording this episode. Like I said, I literally just learned of, of Noel El-Sadai, who passed away today uh, at the age of 89. Uh, a really important figure and a prominent figure globally, quite frankly. I mean, I although I did not know of her, but certainly prominent in Egypt um, and, and certainly was known in uh, activist circles in other parts of the world and around the world, but I plead ignorance until this very moment, until this point. Now, the next 10 or 11 minutes, I would like you please to listen to this and um, listen to this person who has now left us, Nawal Al Sadai. Why just does it persist? It is very deep-rooted habit related to patriarchy, you know? 
It's related to the oppression of women in all religions. In fact, women are circumcised in under all religions, physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically. So we have to put FGM and MGM also, uh, male, male yeah. in a historical context. It's history. It's about sexuality. Is it, it women's sexuality? Uh, yes, about double standard of sexuality. Mm. That women should be monogamous and men are polygamous. You see? So how can women be monogamous? But women often perpetuate FGM. It's not just something that the males do. Yes, the women want it sometimes and, and they, do it. They are brainwashed. Slaves are always against slaves. You know, it's slave mentality. When you are oppressed, you oppress your children, you oppress your, especially your daughters. This is psychology. But the point is we have to understand why female genital mutilation or why male genital mutilation is still today, is still durable, is still now. Nobody speak about males, why males are circumcised. Nobody ask. Though it is very much related to female circumcision. Mm. And it's related to monogamy for women and polygamy for men. In order women to be monogamous, they must be circumcised to be satisfied with one man, you know? So it's related to monogamy. There are other issues. You bring up monogamy and um, just looking at the issue of marriage, I wanted to raise a particular mm. case with you that's making a lot of headlines at mm. the moment. Mm. The case of Noura Hussein, ah. a 19-year-old mm -hmm. woman in the Sudan, mm. neighboring Egypt. And she has and you been- you from Sudan. Uh, oh, I was born in the Sudan. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Dr. Saadawi. Yeah. And she has been condemned to death for stabbing her husband to death. Mm -hmm. She was forced into the marriage when mm -hmm. she was in her early mid-teens. Yes. And she did not consent to have mm -hmm. sexual intercourse with him mm -hmm. and was held down by mm -hmm. three of his male relatives. I know, yes. Yes, so you know the story. Yes. So, and why does the Quran, first of all, the Quran doesn't allow forced marriage. So why, again, does this kind of... It has nothing of, to do with the Quran. Exactly, nothing to do with it. It has Quran. nothing to do with religion. And, you know, because many people think it's Quran who oppress women or Islam. Women are oppressed in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, in Hinduism. So women are oppressed in all religions. And why women should marry young? You know, the, they tried, I was about to marry when I was 10 years, you know, but I struggled hard. I struggled. To... Your parents wanted you to marry at 10 yes, years of age? Yes, yeah. many people in how my age. How did you at 10, yeah. how did you at 10 manage to say, no, this is not well, going to happen? Well, you have to read my autobiography. Well, yes, of course, your new... <laughs> it's it's your... a long battle. Yeah. But what I would like to say, child marriage is universal. You're in China, in the United States, every, it's universal. It's like female gender. Mutilation. It's like uh, polygamy, monogamy, like, uh, you know, everything. Like everything related to women. It is universal. Because girls should marry young. And the man is older to dominate her. You know, domination. The husband should dominate. So they, the girl marry young. She's ignorant. She can be manipulated. She can be exploited. But this one actually, Noura Hussein actually resisted and she said she was tricked into marrying him. And she killed. And she killed him when he tried to force himself Good upon her. her. 
but good for her, you say. Her. But it now did. look at her. I mean, what's going to happen to her? I could just say that Amnesty International say the Sudanese courts are saying she's guilty of premeditated murder, even though she was defending herself from being raped by a man she was forced to marry when she was just a young teenager. She's innocent. This girl is innocent in front of all laws. She's innocent because she was defending herself. Because, you know, her husband raped her. Rape is like killing. When a girl is raped while she is young, young, teenager, this is like killing her. So the, the world should recognize that she was being killed by the husband and she was in self-defense. She was defending herself. So she is innocent. Child marriage is universal. And the oppression of women is universal. And we have to put it in that picture to understand. Uh, looking at the status of uh, women in Egypt today, mm. um, we've heard a lot about women being sexually molested in public areas and so on. And President Sisi has designated 2017, he designated it Women of the Year of the Women. Mm -hmm. And he has said he wants to introduce laws, he's introduced mm -hmm. laws which are more favourable to women, he's mm -hmm. increased the number of women in the cabinet to 18% and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is there progress for women's status and rights in Egypt? Uh, uh, well, very little. Very, women cannot be... I don't believe that the rights of women come from the government, from any government. I believe that women gain their rights by their own efforts. I didn't believe that Nasser will bring liberation to us, or socialism, or Sadat, or Mubarak, or any ruler. We women should organize ourselves and be aware of our problems and fight. I don't believe in individual rule that an individual ruler will bring uh, rights to women or to men or to anybody. So the people themselves should fight for their rights. And you yourself, um, or you say the people themselves should fight should for their fight. rights. And women so, should fight for them. Do you see what's going on in um, a lot of countries around the world, Western countries in particular, mm. America, mm. Europe, mm. about uh, the Me Too campaign where women are standing up and saying this kind of sexual harassment has gone on for too long? Mm. What, what are your views on that? Is it something that resonates with you in Egypt? Yes, yes. And fortunately that women in America and in the world discovered that. Because when I was talking in international women conferences, and I'm saying that the problem of women is global, global and local. We cannot separate between the local and global. They, they laughed. But now the American women now are fighting against rape and uh, sexual molesting. And you heard about the very famous men who raped, uh, who raped women, you see. So I'm happy that it became known universally because yeah. Do you think it's a universal issue, though? You don't think that people have to apply cultural sensitivities and sensibilities and norms, so the debate is different in Egypt from what yeah. it might be in the United exactly. States? Exactly, you got the point. You think I it am... is different? It is universal. Oh, you think it's universal? It is universal, mm. and we should not speak about cultural relativism. I am not very much with this idea of cultural relativism or multiculturalism, this postmodern language, I, I don't agree. I am very critical of this language, the so-called. So I think what I think is that the local is not separate from the global. I think 
this problem raised that feminism is a Western invention, that me, I, I am copying Western women, you know? Yeah. They don't believe that feminism is in every country. That's why I, I call myself historical socialist feminist. But you, you know, that's the point. For example, back in 2001, you said the veil is un-Islamic. You said that um, there are vestiges of pagan practices during the annual Hajj Muslim pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And that backfired on you because you were accused of apostasy, you were sacked from your job at the Ministry of Health and also as editor of a health journal. Yes, yes. So that's the point I'm making. Should you not proceed with a bit more uh, recognition of cultural sensibilities? Well, it's not cultural, because for me, this is happening. I was not speaking specifically about Islam or about Hajj or about women oppression by Islam. No, I was linking all the time in all my writings, whether fiction or non-fiction, I link. I am a medical doctor. So we need, in order to understand women problems or any problem, we should be historical and we should link the problem in history and follow it up till now. You've just written your memoirs at the age of 86, nearly 87, called A Daughter of Isis, mm -hmm. Walking Through Fire. Mm -hmm. When you look back on your long, distinguished career, mm -hmm. what do you think about the, your life's work in trying to promote women's rights? Are you satisfied with what's gone on? Well, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you ask me this question a few years ago, I would say no. But now, yes. You cannot imagine my books. I have 70 books, fiction and non-fiction. They are almost in every home, in Egypt, in Sudan, yes. in all Arab countries. They are there and read by young people, 15 years, 14 years. So I am very satisfied and whenever I go, even to Sudan or Jordan or anywhere. The young people come and tell me, Nawal, you changed my life by your work. So that's enough for me. Even when they were banned, they were, they were smuggled to Saudi Arabia. You know, my books were in Saudi Arabia while they were banned in Egypt. You cannot ban books. People can find them. So your question, yes, I am satisfied. I feel now I'm protected by the young people in Egypt, everywhere. I fulfilled my promise to myself, but also not enough. I should fight more and more until I die. <laughs> but as we said, the status of women in Egypt, in the Arab world, there's still so much that needs to be achieved, accomplished. Of course, but there is also much progress. You cannot see women, young women now in universities everywhere. They talk loud. They are, they are, you know, you meet Egyptian women very outspoken. They're not walking through fire as you were? <laughs> no, much, much less fire. <laughs> much less fire. Of course, they are paying much less price than me because we had to pay very high price. You were imprisoned for three yes, months. You were only, only released because Anwar Sadat was yeah, uh, assassinated. And my reputation. And exiled. Mm. You know, so I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am optimistic. I am full of hope because hope is power. So I think tomorrow will be better. 
I think Egypt now is much better than under Mubarak or Sadat. So we are going on. Dr. Nawada Saadawi, thank you very much indeed for coming on Hard Talk. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you thank Zainab. You. Welcome back. That was roughly half of the interview that the BBC presenter Zainab Badawi did with the legendary activist, writer, freedom fighter, and political prisoner Nawal El Sadawi in May of 2018 for the BBC program Hard Talk. I will be linking to the entire audio of that interview in the liner notes of this episode of The Politocrat. We really have lost a hugely important, influential figure. And we must carry on her work for ourselves and for the future. Rest in power, Nawal El Sadawi. I, for one, and truly, am truly grateful that you were here. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.